0: You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. To join me, if you can, in opening a Bible with me to Matthew chapter 24. Now, if you don't have a Bible or an app or a smartphone or something, there's a paperback Bible in this tray of the chair in front of you do me a favor and make that our gift to you if you don't own a Bible, or even make that our gift to someone who, that you might know that doesn't own a Bible. But we're going to be in the very first of the Gospels. That is, literally the word gospel means good news. And there are four of these Gospels that describe the eyewitness testimony of the life and teaching, the, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew's the first of them and the first of the books of the New Testament. And so we're going to be in the 24th chapter, we're well into the last third of the Bible, oh, excuse me, the, we're in that too, we're in the last third of the Gospel of Matthew, where as I've shared with you before, the, the Gospel of Matthew covers the entire life, death and resurrection of Jesus, roughly 30 years, maybe 2,000 years if you, count his, uh, if you count his genealogy, and he covers all of that time in the first 20 or so chapters, and in the last 10 chapters, a full third of his book is covering one week of Jesus' life. That is the last week of Jesus life where he enters into Jerusalem and where we would expect him to be welcomed and where you would expect him to uh, to be the most positive and upbeat. We find that the clashes and controversies are more dense in their in their quantity and quality for the rest of the story. And beginning last week, we entered into the fifth and final of the most famous discourses, public teachings of Jesus. Now, the first one, the Sermon on the Mount, the most popular thing ever, ever recorded, uh, or the most studied passage of text uh, recorded in history, began with a a series of blessings. and, And shockingly, we saw last chapter in this last discourse, Jesus outlines a series of curses and woes, warnings to what will happen. Now, there's a couple of things there. One, if you're not a Christian, if you're not a believer in Jesus and you're here this morning, I'm so grateful that you're, you're listening in, and I, I want you to see something that maybe you wouldn't have otherwise seen. I want you to see and hear Jesus for who He really is. Because we can regularly kind of be inoculated into thinking, like, why, why would they have killed Jesus? But you don't get hung on a cross for telling people things that they want to hear. And so we're in the heat of controversy where Jesus has, uh, has warned the, the religious elite of the day And then he begins to teach privately to his very disciples for the next two chapters. We're going to spend our time today in the 24th chapter and next week in the 25th. Now, uh, I'll give you this disclaimer as well. Uh, I regularly, intentionally, as graciously as I can, want to stretch your attention span for the reading and teaching of God's Word. That is, I want to stretch your attention span uh, beyond what I I know typically our attention span might be, which is kind of like a scroll scroll a few seconds, right? And so I, I know that over the course of the reading, it's going to take several minutes to read the whole chapter. It's a, in, my, in my text, it's, I, I have larger print, but, uh, but that's just for me. And, and so there's two full pages we're going to read. Now, I know as we stretch our attention span to hearing from God, you're going to space out, you're going to go someplace nice and warm with palm trees, and I hope you enjoy it. But pay close attention. That's okay. As you make your way back into the room, pay close attention to the thing that captivates your attention. Uh, Pay attention to the thing that maybe grabs your attention span and brings you back into South Dakota. So as Jesus gives his warning and then explanation to his disciples, I want us to begin in Matthew chapter 24, but first I'm going to give you a history. In the first century, one of the most cataclysmic cultural events took place. As we're reading this text, Jesus is talking at roughly, give or take, 30 to 33 AD, or CE. CE depending how you want to calculate time at 70 AD or 70 CE the roman army sacked and destroyed by siege fire and every single possible thing you can imagine the whole of the city of jerusalem the whole city completely destroyed for the couple of centuries leading up to it, uh, Herod, one of the, one of the um, Roman governors of this occupied territory, had invested in an act of goodwill, trying to win over the people. And so he built what at this time uh, would have been, when Jesus is speaking here, uh, built one of the greatest modern, or at, for these people, the greatest man-made wonders of the world. That is the temple. And Josephus, a historian we rely on heavily here, tells us that if you hadn't seen this or if you hadn't marveled at this, that you hadn't seen the most beautiful thing in in all of created in all the created world. And it was about to be finished. And, and as it was, outside of one temple, roughly 64 to 66 AD, uh, the historian tells us that, that there were some Roman soldiers or some Roman citizens and Roman leaders who were sacrificing birds or some unclean animals in and around one of the temples in, in Judea, in the greater area of Judea. This sparked a revolt. One of the, one of the greatest, most notable revolts. And so in response to that, the Romans occupied all of Judea, sieged Jerusalem, and then proceeded to wipe it off the map and destroyed what was the greatest, most powerful landmark. Now, Herod invested so much time and energy and resources into it that every single stone was either a polished kind of marble or it was even gold-plated or plated with some sort of valuable material. And as it burned... The people who pillaged and and ransacked all of the temple began to collect as they were every single bit of valuable valuable material that they could possibly gather. All of that happened in 70 AD, a full 40 years after the text we're reading. I share that with you so that you will realize this is history past. This has already happened. But for the people listening to Jesus here 40 years before, it is yet to take place. So begin to lean in now as we hear Jesus predict the outcome of all things, beginning in verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and to the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray for many will come in my name saying I am the Christ and they will lead many astray. World as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak, and alas for women who are pregnant. And for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch, as soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day our Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake, and he would have not let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect." Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him And at an hour he does not know and will cut him into pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is God's word. You may not know it, but you are living right now in this moment in the golden age of apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic, revelatory literature, as is Jesus is speaking here, in the vein of a revelation of things to come. And you may not know it, but you are primed to understand the most mysterious parts of this particular text, because you are right now living in the golden age of apocalyptic literature. Exhibit A. Stories of a post-apocalyptic or bleak and powerful future where serious things will take place. And they all, mind you, and you know this, come with a lesson. They come with a message. They come with some sort of exhortation. And so stop for a moment and ask yourself, what's, what's the lesson of wall Right, what's the lesson? I mean, woven obviously between an adorable love story between two robots. Who's ever cried at a love story with robots? I mean, come on, this is amazing. But inside there, there's a story, a lesson if you haven't seen it, someone else will tell you, but I'll give you the hint. It's something to do with trash, pollution, and even living a sedentary lifestyle at some point. There's another one fitting for today, the day after tomorrow. Again, there are hundreds to choose from. Anyone remember the lesson of this one? Anyone remember the, the watch out for this one? Global warming. But that's what we called it then. There's, now it's called climate change, but... But that was what it was called in this particular book. And everything turned frigid, and people died for how cold it is. And all of you go, mmm. Roll back a little further, one of the, I mean, one of the pioneers of the genre. This is a personal favorite of mine. Mad Max. Anyone remember what this is about? Remember the lesson of this? Remember the, the cause of the great apocalyptic turn? Fuel shortage. There's a shortage of fuel. And of course some of the most important ones. What about this one? You know the warning of this one, right? Machines, robots. And in that same vein, what about the Matrix? This is especially important. What's the evil, what's the, what's the evil, what's the evil working through this movie you're warned about? AI. Come on sheeple. Wake up. The devil, you, you get the idea? Friend, you're, you didn't know, but you're living in a golden age of apocalyptic literature. There's, more, there's a whole genre of apocalyptic literature, and I didn't include them here because they're about like zombies. And I don't know really yet what you could help me. I don't know what the lesson is of that. Look out for the undead. I, okay, right, I, I didn't include that. But there's, again, there's a whole genre of, of this vision of a dystopian future where things start to fall apart and and mind you the the story of this isn't meant to just only kind of pique your your imagination about what might and what could be but it's meant to point to something it's meant to teach you something it's meant to paint a picture of a future and a cause and an outcome and friend that is exactly what Jesus is doing here genre of apocalypse quite literally the word apocalypse just means revelation that's why the book of revelation at the end of the bible is simply it's it, it's a revelation an apocalypse a, a revealing an uncovering of that which is to come it's revelatory it's a genre of especially jewish literature that that thrived in the centuries before and after the coming of jesus now As these apocalypses were admitted into the Bible and included, there's two primary ones. It's the latter half of the book of Daniel and then the majority of the book of Revelation. Now, mind you, it's very important. Uh, After all, all, WALL-E isn't only about robots that fall in love. There's a horizon of meaning taking place there. And so, the apocalyptic literature we find here has a function. And the function of this revelatory prediction is to strengthen the believers in Jesus to remain faithful in the midst of difficult times. In fact, unbelievably, unimaginably difficult times by emphatically proclaiming the hope that they have that God will indeed redeem and deliver His people. And despite the brevity of this, it might not have seemed brief in our time of reading it just a few moments ago, but it is only one chapter, it has the same function. And the exhortation that Jesus offers here, as he paints a picture of the horizons of the future, immediate, near, and even far, the emphasis we have here is to exhort one another to faithfulness. The goal isn't the disclosure of heavenly secrets to puff up our own imagination or understanding, or as the Proverbs would tell us, the goal is especially not to cause us to lean on our understanding, but instead to hear about the One who knows the future and trusts that He'll take us there. Now this is especially obvious in the next chapter, where He gives us a list of parables to describe how it is that we're to be prepared for this coming, this coming series of events. Now, a crash course on what's known as eschatology, all right? You don't have to remember that word, but in biblical interpretation, it's the study of the end. Now, again, you're living in the golden age of eschatology. You are regularly thinking about, talking about, hearing, and even reading about the way that people say things will end. We have an obsession at the moment with the end of things, if you just listen closely. Again, whether you're, whether you're listening to movies and literature about it, people, people are sensing the, the changing of a generation, the changing of culture and society. And so there's a, a pretty profound amount of literature and conversation around the end of things. So, so you're more trained at this than you realize. We're regularly thinking about the end, or maybe just think of it this way. What, what eventuality are you right now prepared for? What right now have you stocked up on? What are you subconsciously, until this moment when I ask it, thinking is going to get you through whatever's going to happen in the next 40 years? That is your eschatology. That is your belief in how you will make it through the difficult or even prosperous days to come. So there are different perspectives that, that take these horizons with either a literal or figurative interpretation. Now, here's the problem. Jesus has mixed in here some very literal things and some very figurative things. He's thrown them all together, right? My favorite one, is he says at the end of all things, a star will come, the stars will fall to the earth, right? That's a figurative statement. We all know, well, we don't know, maybe you don't know this, but I'll let you know. Your average star is larger than the sun and it's, and it's I mean, you know, exponentially larger than the sun and to draw close to it would be incinerated, Right? So he's not saying all things will be incinerated per se, but he's saying something powerful. The heavens and the earth will come together. That which is far off and seems eternally distant will become near. You get the idea? And yet at the same time, he says things like this generation. Now, in these disputed texts, my goal in our time together is to go for the undisputed parts. My goal is to point to the exhortation, the lesson... The imperatives, the exhortations that Jesus offers here. And my goal is to point to Jesus. The goal is that we would trust Jesus in our future. Not necessarily to know everything there is to know. And this is also found throughout the rest of the New Testament. John, as he's giving his own predictions, warns his disciples, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. He's being very explicit. Like, I'm not telling you everything. I'm going to tell you what you need to know. I'm going to tell you what you ought to know. And I'll tell you everything you need to trust me as I guide you through the future. If that isn't enough, even after his resurrection, the the disciples gather around Jesus in the first chapter of the book of Acts, and they ask the same question. as As if to say, after they had seen the death and resurrection of Jesus, they were like, yeah, but really, Jesus. You heard the list of questions that they asked here. Jesus, you say the temple's going to be destroyed. When is that going to happen? And how will we know that the end of all things has come? How will we know that, that you're going to come back and, and, and be the Messiah for us? And even after they saw him crucified and resurrected, they, they, they came to Jesus and were like, okay, no, really. And so they asked, when they'd come together, they said, Lord, will you at this time, you can hear, hear the answer, is, is it now? Is it now Jesus? Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Right, You can hear their their nationalistic fervor. Like, Will you come and will you bless us? Will you make make sure to bless our nation? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. What What a nice way to say none of your business. It is not for you to know. But, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Did you hear hear how the script turned? Are you going to bless our nation now? He's like, oh, no, no, no. This is none of your business. Your business is to declare the good news, not to this nation, but the good news for all the nations. And then when he had said these things, As they were looking on him, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So, we don't all agree on when or how these things will happen. But different perspectives do agree it will happen. What I would contend for you is that your posture is more important than your position. Let the text tell, it wants to, what it, let the text tell you what it wants to tell you. Uh, let Jesus, when he's being literal, tell you when he's being literal and trust him. And when he's being cryptic, we trust him. We trust. If Jesus says something that's mysterious that we can't fully understand, we actually trust what he says to his disciples. You can't quite understand that right now. Don't worry. One day you will. Trust me. Because when Jesus is cryptic and mysterious, it's important to know that he's doing it on purpose. There are two things then before we kind of dive through this text and like crash course on the the first century history and also the end of all things. Number one, while we may be living in the golden age of uh, apocalyptic literature, we are also living in the dark ages of language with respect to things that are literal. Okay? The younger you are in the room, the more you are guilty of what I'm about to say. Forgive the next rant. Some things are literal and some things are figurative. Things that are literal are real, actual, tangible, and concrete. Things that are figurative figurative are symbolic, right? They're a picture of something. And so when you say that something that's symbolic in a picture is literally true, I throw up. Just this last week, I. I was complimented by a teenager on my clothing, and they told me that literally ate and left no crumbs. Do I know what that means? No. But that's figurative. It fig- Whatever it was, figuratively ate and left no crumbs, if that is a thing. I remember not long ago, we were watching a, one, of the, like one of the singing competition shows, and one of the judges said, uh, as a compliment to one of the singers, that song is so difficult to perform, it's literally like slaying a dragon. Oh, no. No. It's figuratively. So I, I'm, I want you to, as we dive in, know that right now, most of you are living in a disadvantage because you don't know what the word literal means. And I'm a grumpy old man, get off my lawn. I'm done now. But... This is literally true in some areas where Jesus means for it to be literally and historically true. And in some areas, it's figurative. It's meant to stir your imagination because what's true and real can't even be apprehended by our eyesight. It's only something that can be apprehended by faith. And so Jesus gives us pictures, and we'll see even in the next chapter, parables to help us understand what's real and how we might understand what's real and yet beyond our understanding. So, here we go. Let's run through these together. In the first section, there's an ominous and powerful introduction for the rest of the chapter. Jesus, in verse 1, left the temple and was going away. This is a powerful picture. Jesus, who has cleansed the temple, flipped the tables, as a way to point to Himself as the means by which we are purified and made right before God, is literally... (laughs) And yet, powerfully for Matthew, figuratively leaving the temple. Moving on from it. An era is changing. He is moving on. The, The means by which people will come to know God, the very presence of God Himself is leaving the temple. And the other gospels give us a window into this, but the disciples evidently marvel. At this, as I shared with you, one of the marvels of, of Herod's creation, at this beautiful second temple rebuilt. And they said, look, isn't this an amazing? For them, this would have been the most powerful, uh, right, the most powerful economic, and, and in this case, like, like architectural achievement they had ever seen. The most valuable thing anyone had ever conceived of was this temple. Right, think of the most valuable property, the most valuable you know, franchise, the most valuable business. The most, think of the most expensive possible thing you can imagine on the planet right now. That's the temple. And they look at it and go like, wow, look at this. And Jesus says, truly, I say to you, every single stone here will be taken off of another stone. Now the evidence of this is it took place 40 years later, but the evidence is also if you, if you, if you want to see this temple, if you even want a rendering of it, we don't have it. There is nothing left. When the Romans wiped out this temple, they destroyed it completely. So, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, this is why this last discourse is known as the Olivet Discourse. He's on the Mount of Olives teaching his disciples privately, and they say, okay, Jesus, that's a pretty harsh thing. When is this going to happen? Same as if I told you right now, again, imagine that thing that, that you just imagined, the most valuable, most amazing thing, right? Um, the most, you know, like the greatest franchise, the greatest property, the greatest work of art, the great, whatever in your mind is the most valuable. Imagine if I said to you, it is going to be obliterated. There will be nothing left of it, right? The most valuable business in the world, right? Amazon or whatever, I don't know. It's going to, nothing will be left. Not a single box will be left on another box. I just made that up. That's stupid. But but imagine something valuable like a franchise, like a, a, a that are right now worth billions of dollars. Your favorite team, nothing will be left of it. Think of a, a beautiful architect or, or, or architecture. Think of like the the pyramids in Gaza. If I were to say to you, or Giza, Gaza, don't now now I'm gonna throw up. Think of the pyramids in Egypt, and I said to you, every single one of these is going to be obliterated. You'd be like, how exactly is that going to happen? When do you see that taking place? So they say, When is this going to happen? Jesus says, I'm going to tell you something powerful that you will be led, many will be led astray by. So here's the encouragements. I think there's nine of them. One, Jesus knows the future and holds it in his hands. We see this powerfully true in Revelation chapter 5 when the mourning that John has over the revelation of things to come is in a scroll. And he weeps and he says, no one can open the scroll. How can we get into the future safely? How can we get to this desired outcome? And it says, no one could open it. And he began to weep until he turned around. And what did he see? He saw a lamb standing as if it had been slain. And then glory and majesty is ascribed to this lamb because he is able to open the scroll. And he walks up to God on the throne and takes the scroll, the future of all things, in one hand. Jesus knows the future, and he can hold it with one hand tied behind his back. Jesus knows the future. So when he begins to encourage them about what's about to happen, and even warn them about the things that will take place, you're meant to see something powerful. Jesus knows the future, and you do not. So even as you find yourself, like the disciples, going like what are you, what is happening? Like what's, even in this, the uncertainty of this week, if you find yourself going, what's going on? What's going to happen? Stop for at least one moment and pause and realize the fact that you ask that question means you are not the Savior and you are invited to know the one who is. He knows the future. He holds it in his hands. Look at the next section. Jesus is the true hope that satisfies satisfies all our longings. Look at the warning he gives. In, in verse 4, he says, over, over, over the course of the next couple of paragraphs, many will be led astray. There will be false saviors that will come along. Now, that might be literally true. That might be a person who says, I am the Savior, right? You think there have been cults that have been, sort I, I am Jesus, I am the Redeemer, I am the new Messiah. But more often than not, it's simply a kind of like a false Savior. The kinds of things that lead us astray because we think it will give us what Christ alone can. Think of all the things that you and I look to on the course of a particular day for comfort, for peace, for assurance, for security, for safety. Every one of those can potentially tell a lie. They can tell a lie that they can save you, they can deliver you. But Jesus, we see here, no matter what is to come, is the true hope. And even as people are led astray to to want and long for and be satisfied by lesser things, we know that Jesus is the true satisfier, the true redeemer. Next, we can trust the gospel until the end and proclaim it accordingly. Look at verse 14. The good news of this kingdom, the good news that we sing about, the good news that we remind ourselves with, the good news that hopefully I remind you of on a weekly basis, you can trust it. And not just today and not just this week. You can trust it till the end. Again, if you skip to the end, The language of the hymns and songs that will be sung around the throne of God are the same hymns and songs we sing today. Many things will come to an end, but we will still, again, we will still marvel at this gospel. Around the throne, we will sing glory and honor to the Lamb who was slain, who has purchased people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, peoples for Himself. That He will be their God. This is the song we sang this morning. This is the song we will sing forever. We will never stop marveling at the good news that the God of the universe has come to be with us and like us and for us. We can trust it. And so, as you see in verse 14, we can proclaim it. It will happen. It will happen, it says, to all the nations and then the end will come. Now, He's not saying, right? He's not saying, you know, it, once, we, once we knock out all the people groups and all the nations have been, you know, have been infiltrated by missionaries, as it were, then Jesus will go like, all right, good, you're done now. As if we can usher in His kingdom. That's not what He's saying. He's saying that even to the last, even to the last, there will be people marveling and proclaiming this good news of Jesus. Nothing will silence it. And so we can then proclaim Accordingly. This means practically for us, every single Sunday, many of you in the room wish I would talk about something else, right? Even now, you're like, when is he going to get to that part where he endorses or condemns this political party, right? When is he going to, right? And, this, and there's no shortage of hot takes on any particular topic right now, right? And And any given Sunday, I know many of you are like, I wish you would give me a hot take, but here's why I will continually frustrate you. My goal is, if I'm doing anything any good, is to serve you by saying, that won't satisfy you. That isn't the thing we'll be talking about at the end. The Lamb who was slain, victorious over sin, death, and hell, on behalf of those who would repent of their sins and look to Him for hope, that is the good news that we will be talking about forever. And so mornings like this are simply a dress rehearsal. Look at the next paragraph. Jesus' chosen people will not be overcome. You get this picture, and the language used here is that even though awful things will will be coming, the awful things will not overwhelm, and the language there is, the elect. That is, the ones chosen by God. Now, I know many people, this this is just a side here, many of us would think, uh, you might be here thinking, I'm going to... Contemplate choosing Jesus. And I'm so grateful. I want you to choose Jesus right now. I want you to choose to love and serve Jesus. He's worth it. He's, no, no one is more famous. No one is more powerful. This more Choose. Give your life to Jesus. Trust Him. Turn from your sin. Follow Him. Give your life. Write, write a blank check with your life and slide it across the table to Jesus. And yet, our hope is that He has chosen us. Our hope is not that we will keep our grip fast onto Him. Our hope, and it's a trustworthy hope, is that He will not lose His grip on us. And that's all wrapped up in that language of the elect, the chosen ones. Now, I want to warn you that that idea that those who are saved are chosen comes as a very abrasive attack to your pride and mine. And so when I tell you that God chooses his people and makes them, himself, makes them a people for himself, I know there's something in you that feels like it, it grates against you, and that thing is called pride. That thing is a desire to be God and choose your own like, outcome for your universe yourself. Next, Jesus will return and no one will miss it. Jesus will return, no one will miss it. Look at verse uh, Look at verse 29. There will be a sign that is of, that, that will be visible. No one will miss it. Like lightning that starts uh, metaphorically in the east, but then goes to the world. You, no one would miss lightning. Like vultures over a carcass, it will be visible, right? Like if you see vultures circling over something, none of us sees v- like vultures circling over something and goes, like, that must be a birthday party, right? Like you, you, you see it and you immediately know what? There's a carcass. You wouldn't wouldn't mistake it for anything else. And so Jesus is saying, when he returns, no one will have to tell you. So he said, like, if someone says, go over there, he's back, he's not. If someone says, go downstairs, he's back, like, he's not. No one will have to tell you. That's the good news we have, is that you want a sign, he says, the sign will be of the Son of Man, the sign will be of, 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 of one coming on the clouds into the throne of God, as it were and over the universe. You want a sign? I will be the sign. When I return, you will know. When I return, that will be its sign. When you see me on the sky, I'm back. Jesus will return, no one will miss it. Jesus will return, and no one will misunderstand it. Notice in verse 29, there will be those who immediately mourn. There will be those who know that when Jesus has come back, the sign of that which is to come will be visible and tangible. He describes this in such a way that we would know it is blatantly obvious for who is in and who is out of his kingdom. Think of it this way. When Jesus comes back, this is the powerful miracle of the revelation of God's presence on the earth. When Jesus comes back to make all things new, to redeem those who have looked to Him for hope, and to judge those who have turned from Him and spurned Him. No one, no one will wonder what's happening. No one. And for those of us who are hoping that He will come soon, right? for those of us who see this happening, who see the suffering in the world, we see the hurt and pain that people we love go through on a daily basis, for those of us who experience loss, And we're longing for Jesus to come back and make it right, we will know. We will know immediately. We will know. No one won't have to tell us. We'll have to go, there he is. There he is. And yet, for those who have said there is no God, I need no help, I need no hope, I'm fine on my own. I will be the God of my own universe. Hear me. I don't say this lightly, but I do say it as one who is repeating the very words of Jesus. They will know there he is. It will not be misunderstood. Many will see it and rejoice. (laughs) Just, just like, this is the best test of where you are this morning. If I told you Jesus is walking into the room, the Lord, Judge, and King of the universe was was at the, like, I love it. Like, he's at the door, right? Right? Just, if he walked in the room, just stop for a minute and think about what you would do think about what you would do i hope in some sanctified way i would run to him. i would just hug him i'd be like i'm so glad you're here <laughs> you, you know, holy smokes have you seen this have you seen like i'm so glad you're here what would you do after all you're an expert in apocalyptic literature what would you do if jesus came back what would be your gut response and reaction and now you're beginning to see that's exactly that's exactly what he wants to warn and encourage us to reflect upon. If there's any bit of you who thinks like, meh, whatever. Or if there's any bit of you who knows that if he were to return and judge all of our impure and wicked thoughts, actions, secret hopes, desires, sins, and fears, if he were to judge them and bring them to the light, if that causes you any sort of any sort of fear or angst, then, friend, let his warning do its work. Trust him; he knows the future. He holds it, and when he returns, everyone will understand. Look at the last bit of paragraph or the second to last there. Jesus is near, and his words will not fail. Will not fail. He says, "Look, the world is passing away. The things that you love and hope in are falling apart. But my words." will not. They won't fail you. Jesus is coming. It's right around the corner. Regularly, I remind you by saying something like, you know, on your best day, your best, highest self-esteem is still less than what Jesus says about you. What Jesus says about you is infinitely, eternally better. And this is where I get that. Because maybe you think fairly highly of yourself today, right? There's something you feel like you can pat yourself on the back for, but that's just a cover for the other days you know you can't. What about the one who has come to take the place of the undeserving, who promises to never leave us and to never forsake us? Friend, Jesus is near, and what he says about you is better than what anyone could possibly say about you. And his words aren't temporary. They're not contingent upon the situation. They will never, did you hear that? Never pass away in verses 32 through 35. Notice he says this generation will not pass away before all these things take place. Now this is where I wanted to point out the disputed parts and the undisputed parts. This is a more disputed part. The most immediate horizon is that he's talking about what would happen 40 years later is that that current group of disciples would probably be alive or the current generation of people who would come to follow Jesus. The first century church would still be alive when all of these things take place, when, when all of Jerusalem will be ransacked, when the, when the new era will come in, the, the era of people trusting in Jesus and coming straight to God by the sacrifice of Jesus. No longer would they even possibly go to a temple to meet God because that temple would no longer exist. And that would happen, but but it also is a, a different horizon. A, by a different horizon, I mean like if you've ever climbed over a hill, or driven over a hill, or God help some of you, you've climbed over a mountain, and then as you get over the precipice, you look up beyond, and there's more mountains, or there's there's more beyond. There's There's more to climb, as it were. That's the the different kind of horizon that's beyond it. There, there will be a tribulation. Difficulty will befall not only that generation, the first, the first century church, but even the whole of the church. But what does he say? Don't worry. Don't worry. This generation, these people, whatever, it, whether it means just that first century or whether it means you and me, the new people as it were, made up of the peoples of God or the peoples of the nations drawn to be the people of God, that people will last he won't leave us. Whatever he means to do, he will do and he will include his people. The tribulation, whatever it come, whatever it is, it will not wipe out my people, he says. Those that are at the center of God's redemptive purpose will remain. Jesus will come for the ready and shock the unprepared. When he comes, you see this in verse 36 all the way to verse 45, there will be people that know he's coming for him. And they will rejoice and there will be people that know he is coming for him and they will weep friend hear the warning for what it is fear in and of itself is not a motivation for faith that isn't what jesus is trying to do jesus isn't trying to scare any one of us into trusting him right Uh, and that and that that i know even in my own in my own lifetime i've seen as as a, a very a very unsatisfying and unhelpful motivation to come to jesus right Well, come to Jesus so you don't go to hell. Come to Jesus so you don't suffer. You don't even have to like Jesus to buy up into that proposition. You just have to not want to go to hell. It's like, did anyone want to go to hell? Yeah, totally. If hell's real, I totally want to burn in it forever. No one has ever said that. It's like self-preservation makes it impossible to say such a thing. But that in and of itself isn't motivation enough. What's he saying? I'm coming back. And let that right? Let that, let that beautiful picture, what would it look like? Just think for just a moment. What would it look like if Jesus came back, came into the room, and you knew in the depths of your soul that He came back for you? Friend, that is what you and I are offered by God's grace through the gift of faith. The absurdly good news That when Jesus comes, I know it's going to sound arrogant and ridiculous, but it is still biblically true. When Jesus comes back, I will be able to say, he's coming for me. And, And you'll be like, well, how can that be? I know you. And I'll go, that's absolutely right. It's grace. That's the only reason he would come back for me and not destroy me. There is wrath. Before we move on to the end of this, just be encouraged by the wrath that is to come. Most people are terrified of the idea of a judgment day. But I want you to see the, the underlying principle. Every one of us is afraid that we are forgotten and unknown. Every one of us fights a daily fear that we're insignificant, meaningless, unloved, uncared for. Hear the good news of judgment day. Every single thing in this universe is known by God every single thing. He knows every single thing. Every injustice that you've either experienced or witnessed will be made right. Every awful thing that has been done will be undone. If I were to summarize the encouragement for this chapter, it's this, it's going to be bad. Today, this week, next hundred years, whatever. Lord willing, if he should wait before he returns, I can tell you this with truth. And I hope if, if you're new, if you're new to Christianity, I love, I love how honest and truthful the Bible is with us. I've always hated to be just pandered to, right? Like, oh, it's gonna be fine. And, and here's what I get to tell you, it's gonna be bad. And simultaneously, it's gonna be okay. It's gonna be bad. And it's gonna be okay. The awful things predicted here are absolutely going to happen. And Jesus says, don't worry, it's going to be okay. Regardless of when you think this is going to happen, the message is simply that. It's going to be terrible, but I'm going to be right there with you. I'm never going to leave you. And the one thing you'll know, and this will be the sign, as it gets worse, you will be reminded that he is with us. God is in control and God is on our side. So here's three encouragements. As acts of faith, be vigilant, be expectant, be allegiant. Be vigilant. Be attentive. Be all ears. Be observant. Be on your toes. There will be false prophets. There will be false hopes. There will be things that look like good news to us and they will leave us, right? They will leave us brokenhearted. I know many of you that that's the reason you're here, is by God's grace, the thing you were hoping would satisfy you didn't. And you're like, well, maybe I'll look to this Jesus thing, right? There will be false hopes. There will be false signs. These will be signs of just how much we wish Jesus would come back. And they all point to something. They're all going somewhere. This story has an end, and God is in control of it. And we are certain that what we are seeing, no matter what we see, is the unfolding, not for something for us to be terrified of, but for us to hope in. Be vigilant. Be observant. Be aware. Be astute. Be expectant. That is, be prepared. Be equipped. Be ready. Now we'll spend more time, our entirety of our time next week, in the parables that tell us exactly what that will look like. So if you wonder, well, what does that look like? There's a whole other chapter. Read ahead. It's exciting. Don't be caught unaware. Trust in what He has given us. Humility and trust in Jesus is visible in how we wait. We don't know when but we do know who. So be expectant. We have both the power for realism, right? That that saves us from false hope, but also optimism. This isn't the end. These things don't get the last word. And last be allegiant. You see that last little section beginning at the last bit of that passage, he gives a picture of a master who has entrusted his very family to a servant. And that is, we're meant to be obedient constant be stewards dependable stewards of what god has entrusted to us so friend keep showing up on a sunday right again lord willing unless your street is drifted over and is iced over and the roads are closed god help us right but keep gathering with christians and keep being scattered out on mission keep doing this stick with it be be dependable. Be a good steward with what God's given you because I don't know when. And, and by the way, if anyone starts to even say, no, it's, you could tell. Did you see the news? It's, already, it's like, no, you're not going to know when. That's the point. If you, if you knew when, that's, that's not when. But be diligent in this and, and be good stewards. Be good stewards of the time, of the talent, the treasure that God has given to you and to me because when he comes back, he will find us in such a way. We, living out a trust. Keep gathering and scattering. He'll come back and find us doing what he started in us. I don't know much, how much he's entrusted to you. I don't know how much time he's given to you or to me. But he gave you, he gave you something. He says, you know what plants look like, right? <laughs> this, is, this is easy for us. You know what spring looks like, right? You won't miss it. And when you begin to see it, you'll know that he's at the door and he's entrusted something to us. Be sure of this, he says. It's instructive and directive. Worship. Be a part of a church. Share the gospel. He will meet you in it. (laughs) These are tangible, practical things. Join us for inside connection. He will meet us in it. Sing to him. Exalt his name. He'll meet you in it. Endure the pains that you face right now. He'll meet you in it. He won't leave you. You don't know when, but you do know who. Let this dire warning do its work to sober us up. Because remember I told you there are horizons of fulfillment here? Horizons of the second coming and the end and culmination of all things. And then for this generation, it would have been hearing this right away. It was the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. But but there was one more immediate horizon. There was one more immediate fulfillment of the abomination. That is the sacrilege. An awful thing that proves a a desolation. There is one more immediate horizon. There is one more fulfillment. It's Jesus. Jesus is the one who knows the difficult future, who meets us in it, and will come back to rescue us through it. After all, no one, experienced more tribulation, betrayal, persecution, abandonment than Jesus in the days immediately after He shared these things. No one saw an abomination so desolate as people spat upon God Himself, mocked Him, stripped Him naked, insulted Him, denied Him. No one saw or experienced an abomination like Jesus. And yet, look, no one was met by the Father and redeemed and restored than Jesus on the third day led out of the tomb to be victorious over sin, death, hell, and every single thing that He and we would face. Look at the most immediate horizon. Long for the coming of Christ because He came first lying in a manger, but one day He'll come back riding on the clouds. The first time he came in humility to bring salvation and hope. But the next time he will come to bring justice and execute judgment. And you and I confidently watch. You and I confidently hope. We can trust Jesus and be encouraged by his understanding of the future because he is the true prophet who knows our future. He is the true priest who is near to us, who took our place on the cross to intercede for your sin and mine. And he is the true king who will restore All things. So, friend, (laughs) look through (laughs) the lens of this apocalyptic picture and see Jesus. (laughs) See Jesus for how amazing he is that he knows the future. And yet he has met us in the depths of our sin, met us in the depths of our suffering to be the perfect and righteous sacrifice. Our wasteland of a future is no wasteland at all because Jesus is with us. And our wasteland of a future is no wasteland at all because our King will come to restore all things. Now, together let's pray and let's look to Him in hope. Jesus, thank You so much that You have promised a future, a future that You will not send us to, but a, a future that You will lead us through. Even now, I pray that you would give comfort and encouragement to those in this room by this text, whatever they face. might Even now, they begin to, begin to realize that the future they face, you're already there. <laughs> you're waiting for us there. You're going to welcome us there. It'll give us all the comfort and hope that we need there. So, Lord, for those who are downtrodden in this room, for those of us who are weary and need rest, would you, would you show us that you have that? Would you offer the kind of comfort, forgiveness for the sinner, rest for the weary, hope and a home for the wanderer. Lord, thank you. You give all these things to us. Thank you that by your perfect life, by your atoning death, and by your victorious resurrection, we can trust you with the future. We can trust you as the one who has suffered in our place to know that you will comfort us in suffering. We can respond in faith because we know that you are trustworthy. You are the ultimate one who experienced persecution, tribulation, and desolation. And yet by the power of God, you were raised. Help us now to look to you, to hope in you, to heed the warnings you offer and accept the invitation that you grant. Thank you for the gift of faith that you freely give to those of us who look for delivering power in your name. It's in that name that we pray, amen.